0: Welcome back to Ghostbusters Minute. Ghostbusters Minute is the fan podcast that chronicles and overanalyzes the classic 1984 film Ghostbusters Minute by Minute. I'm Kyle. I'm Brady. And today we are joined by a very special guest. We're joined by John from the Alien Minute podcast. John, how are you today?
1: I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks oh, for coming Yeah, yeah, yeah thank you so
0: much for coming on. Looking forward to this. For a while. Yeah, uh, it's uh, a great pleasure to have you joining us from Kansas City tonight uh, for a number of reasons. We've got a, uh, an alien Ghostbusters connection, of course, with Sigourney Weaver. Uh, being in the uh, in in both films, but also Brady and I are massive, massive Alien fans. So oh, we yeah. might try to pick yeah. your brain a little bit on some Alien trivia while we're talking about Ghostbusters. This might end up
2: being like three quarters Alien Alien <laughs> Minute, basically. <Yeah>. So. <laughs>
1: well, that's fine. I'm very used to talking about Alien. So.
0: Yeah. Well, for some of the folks out there that maybe haven't heard about Alien Minute, uh, could you tell us uh, where they can find it and, and what that shows like?
1: Yeah. So it's at alienminute.com or on iTunes under Alien Minute. Um, yeah, it, it really follows closely the Star Wars Minute format. We just uh, talk about the show, you know, summarize what, what the minute is and then get into it. But uh, it, it's hosted by me, uh, John Engel. Mitch Bryan's my partner. Uh, Mitch is a screenwriter. He was a screenwriter in Hollywood for a long time, and he was my screenwriting professor in college. So uh, we take a, an approach of more analyzing it as uh, storytelling, analyzing the screenplay, analyzing the choices made, the directorial choices, the editorial choices. So um, some of the minute podcasts, you know, they they tend to be more freeform and uh, maybe pop culture centric where we're a little bit more cinema centric. We like to talk about the ins and outs of the filmmaking process. So that's pretty much what it's about. Just talking about Alien in that in that capacity.
0: That's awesome, and it makes for a, a great show. You guys have a, very clearly a love for cinema and a huge knowledge base of what goes into filmmaking and story structure and stuff like that. And Alien's a really interesting movie to do that on because there's so much information conveyed in uh, mood setting, you know, like slow pans, stuff like that. Uh, Ghostbusters is the kind of um, almost like improv, uh, we've said, when we had the guys from Back to the Future Minute on uh Uh, Nick and Scott, from that podcast, we talked about how Back to the Future is a screenplay and story where it's like everything is deliberate and happening for a reason. Ghostbusters is one where it's a little bit more improv. They kind of had an idea of what they were going to do and they stuck to the script, but they let the uh, the actors build the characters. Alien is one where I feel the story is conveyed in just uh, almost just scene setting. You know, uh, the the tempo, the pacing of the camera and stuff like that. Do you guys ever find yourself stuck in a minute or maybe two minute period with no dialogue at all, where you're just talking about lighting and stage uh, setting and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, This is where Mitch, this is Mitch's strong suit on the show because he is an experienced filmmaker more so than I. I've made a few short films, but mostly I'm a writer and he's a writer, but he's also directed a lot of films and actually had uh, screenplays produced and had experience behind the scenes it has a lot more knowledge of lenses and how to shoot, you know, a scene. He ta- likes to talk a lot about Ridley Scott's approach, uh, the camera setups, the, uh, using one and two. One of the things he likes to talk about a lot in alien, and as far as talking about setting the mood and, and some of the choices made in directing that film is there was a lot of times where Ridley Scott was operating the camera along with another camera operator and covering the scene that way for budgetary reasons, but also to make sure they had full coverage and a lot to work with for the scene. So, that's the kind of stuff that we talk about and some of the stuff that Mitch really knows about that I wouldn't honestly know anything about. Like, I wouldn't be able to come with that knowledge ahead of time. And you can hear, if you listen to our show, you can hear the teacher pupil relationship between us that we still carry on. I've long since been out of college, but he uh, still we still kind of play that role. I still defer to him on a lot of things. and Yeah, for sure. Alien's definitely one of those films that you can always fall back on the craft. Uh, uh when right. you're analyzing it it's not always about the dialogue it's or the plot how the how the story moves
2: yeah and, that is something i always catch too when i'm watching alien is you can tell that ridley scott has such an appreciation for budgetary restraint and
0: um you're maximizing and, what's going on in the scene is that what you yeah, mean yeah yeah
2: yeah exactly and uh you know you can tell that he's got like multiple cameras set up and everything and he just kind of tells the kodo and sigourney weaver to just go at each other right. here's my cameras they're running you all two just act and uh so that's that's yeah
1: yeah and, and at the time you know you could argue what his skill set what his strong point is now as a filmmaker but at the time he wasn't strong with actors right. and what's one of the great successes of alien is the shrewd casting they were able to cast everyone in roles that were perfect for them and experienced actors even though Sigourney Weaver wasn't super experienced she was just so good that they were all able to embody the characters to a point where apparently he could be as hands off as he wanted to be, and uh, feel comfortable. He felt more comfortable that way, just sticking with the camera and letting the actors do their thing. And it turned out to be a great success, in my opinion. Now maybe he's a little too hands on, and when you talk about the budgetary restrictions early in his career and how they work to his benefit, I would argue that maybe that you know he has too much money now yeah, <laughs> to work man. with, and so on. So you, it's fine. You know, he's he's aged, he's earned. Uh, the right to have the budget that he gets, and uh, he can do whatever he wants. He's the maestro. So, um, but it's nice to see in his early career how he worked with limitations. He was very good at that.
0: Awesome. So, folks, it's alienminute.com and we highly suggest if if you like our show at all, uh, and you but you want something a little bit more intellectual, I would say definitely check out Alien Minute. It's a it's a, a, a you can tell these guys love cinema. They know what they're talking about. Check it out. It's an awesome show. So, all right, mm-hmm. were you guys ready to get into minute number seventy three? Let's do it. Awesome. So in the previous minute, Egon gave a historical description of who Evo Shandor was during his lifetime. Winston has just asked the Ghostbusters if they actually intend on going in front of a federal judge and tell him that the world was about to end because of the imminent return of a Babylonian god. At minute number 73, Egon interrupts him and says, Sumerian, not Babylonian. Venkman agrees and says, yeah, big difference. At 7308, Winston tells Vankman that he is getting his own lawyer. At seventy three twelve. Carl Winslow shows up and tells the Ghostbusters that they are free to go because the mayor wants to see them. Peter tells the other inmates that he has to split because the mayor wants to rap with them about some things. At 7316, we cut back to a shot of 55 Central Park West where we see a police barricade being placed in front of the building. After a few seconds, Louis Tully steps into frame and looks up at the building. At 73:36, we smash cut to a shot of Dana Barrett, now possessed by Zul, sitting in a lounge chair and waiting for the keymaster to appear. Behind her is the blown-out exterior of her apartment with a rather breathtaking view of New York's skyline and Central Park. At 73:40, Louis Tully, possessed by Vince Clortho, opens the door to Dana's apartment. He surveys the room and says, "I am the keymaster." At 73.45, we cut back to a shot of Dana Barrett sitting in her lounge chair. She says, I am the gatekeeper. At 73.48, Lewis walks into the apartment. The door slams shut behind him on its own. 73.55, as Lewis walks across the remnants of Dana Barrett's apartment, she rises from her chair and walks seductively towards him. And thus ends minute number 73. So, again, John, we get uh, just a fantastic performance uh, from Sigourney Weaver here. Really uh, not with a lot of dialogue, but she owns the screen anytime she's on it, doesn't she?
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting to watch her in this role and then think about where she was in her career at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I, I decided to just rewatch the whole movie last night before doing this with you guys and, and look at it from her point of view. And I've never done that because there's a real good reason why. Because Bill Murray always dominates the screen when he's on it. And right. it's kind of easy to never look at the people you know, that he's sharing the screen with. And so really most of her role is playing off of Bill Murray. And it's the first comedy role she's had. Um, she, you know, she had a, a small role on a soap opera. Um, she was cast in Annie Hall. I'm not 100% sure how much Woody Allen shot with her. But I know that it all got cut. Whatever he shot with her got cut other than this one very, very wide shot of her in front of a movie theater with him. And then we're right into Alien. And after that, she's you know, still to this day even she's uh, pretty selective with roles. I guess not so much to this day. In the last few years she's been pretty open to do a lot of cameos and so on. But um, at the time she had not done a comedy role yet before doing Ghostbusters. If I'm wrong about that, I'm sorry, but I think I'm I think I'm right about that. Yeah, I and think you're right. So it's funny to watch her clearly being the straight man, so to speak. And she's pretty good at it. Um, I, I actually think yeah. she works really well against Bill Murray. I'm not sure how the, the audition process or if they did screen tests together or how they decided on her for this role, but she works really well. She's definitely, you're going to believe that Scorny Weaver is not going to suffer this fool. You know, she's going to see right through his bullshit. And uh, she's perfect for that. And then, of course, we get to move into this otherworldly kind of role that she's uh, the state that she's in now that we see her. And she's perfect for that. And part, part of it's her appearance. I think that she has this such a unique look to her that she mm-hmm. works perfectly as this sexy demon possessed woman at this part of the movie. So, um, yeah, it was interesting to look at her from that point of view as I watched, rewatched the movie last night.
0: Yeah, the Ghostbusters asks a little bit more of her than I think people realize when they think about Sigourney Weaver in the different roles she's done. Because, like you're saying, she does have to act she's a little bit of Ripley in her as Dana Barrett. You know, she's not going to take any crap from anybody, but she's got a softer side there at the fountain scene where she's talking to Peter Vankman She lets it down a little bit and she's open to maybe, you know, seeing him as more than a client, uh, you know, customer type relationship. Uh, but then when she is possessed by Zool, she has to do some outrageous outlandish stuff. And that's kind of like, she has like two halves in the movie. There's the one half where she's Dana Barrett, you know, take no bullshit, New York tough woman. And then the other half where she's this kind of crazy spiritual being who, you know, is highly sexualized, uh, you know, but still also she still has that kind of like tough veneer about her. I don't know. She's in charge all the time. But you're right in saying that whenever she's on screen with Bill Murray, the eye goes to Murray. And with the two of them on screen together, it's it had to be very, very difficult to act against what he was doing there. Number one, not to be breaking up, you know, cracking up laughing the whole time. But number two, to say, you know, how am I going to get my character's stuff across with this wild man here?
1: I think part of the reason for that is that, you know, as an audience watching the film, you don't want her to be cold. And she's she's a little bit cold. She's, she's so, somewhat warm to Tully, like especially when... Well, it's after the fountain scene when, when he finds out she has the date, right? Right, And, yeah, and he's obviously so, so just <laughs> hurt by this fact. She softens to him a little bit there. That's nice to see. She's like a real, she's an empathetic person. Yeah, and, yeah. But early on, had she stuck with her character as it was early on, it could have been kind of cliche cold ice queen kind of role, and I don't think that would have been good at all. And what's funny, though, you say, talk about her trying not to crack, or like if that's part of the performance when you're dealing with bill murray pro- probably improvising on the set uh trying not to crack i think her letting herself crack just every a little bit here and there is actually what works in the role i think she allowed that into the role a little yeah, bit i think that's why that's there's that electric smile there at the fountain i think maybe sigourney weaver was actually smiling there <laughs> wasn't it just the character you know Yeah. so yeah. she's good i mean that's good acting though you use what you got and uh of course she's brilliant and you know obviously she goes on to be a great, she's a great comedic actress. Uh, I think we all could agree from Galaxy Quest, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Most, no, she's great most people Quest. agree that she's amazing. Everyone's amazing in that. And she's amazing uh, in that full on comedy role. So we know she got the chops to do it, but um, it's a perfect balance, I think, here with Dana.
0: You know, it's it's funny we're talking about Sigourney Weaver because on the day we're recording this, uh, her birthday was yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and it was just announced last night at New York Comic-Con that she is going to be the bad guy in the Marvel Defenders TV series that is going to be on Netflix. Uh, so she's really, in the last few years, it seems like maybe she has uh, decided to take on a little bit more of the genre roles that got her career started, kind of make maybe pay back to everybody that's been a fan, you know, for a while of being in these things. Uh, do you have any expectations for her in, uh, in, in being a part of the Marvel cinematic universe?
1: I expect her to be great. I I think that, (laughs) you know, she's had her ups and downs lately and it's not her that's had the ups and downs as much as just her choice of doing some lesser roles, maybe lesser films. But, uh, Mm -hmm. I think it was. I don't know. I think it might have been working with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost on Paul that might have turned her. I feel like since then she's been almost all genre and yeah. playing around in sci-fi and letting her voice, you know, lending her voice to Pixar movies and so on and so forth. So I think that she is. You're right. She's owning up to it and, and accepting. You know, at this point in her career, uh, something
2: kind of strange. Oh, I'm sorry. Keep going. No,
1: go ahead. I was just basically going to say that uh, agree that she's. Maybe paying it back a little bit, knowing that her her career was launched by this and kind a of sci fi yeah. geek culture. So uh, I, I think that you know I look forward to her turn in this. Uh, I have no idea what her character is going to be in the Defenders. I kind of don't want to know. I'm not I'm not a deep yeah. Marvel guy, so I don't know everything about what goes on in that universe. But I expect her to do very well.
2: Here's something a little strange: is uh, in movies whenever you have an actor who's addressing another movie as having been like a real thing that they were in. My example here is in the movie Be Kind, Rewind with Jack Black and Most Deaf. when I can't remember what Sigourney Weaver's character was doing in it, but uh, the movie Ghostbusters is referenced in that movie.
0: That's true. So don't
2: you think somebody would be like, hey, this lady I'm talking to right now looks so much like Sigourney Weaver.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what they did. I think one of the brilliant parts of Ocean's 12 was when they had – julia roberts playing a julia roberts lookalike in the movie and then having the characters reference how much yeah. this uh, this character looks like julia roberts the actor who was playing her it was meta and it was weird and it was just kind of fun but i i, I think it worked in that movie but yeah. um yeah for a second when you were bringing that up i thought you were talking about ghostbusters for a minute i was like do they reference alien in ghostbusters <laughs> i don't remember but no no yeah um yeah, so we do get an appearance in this movie by famed policeman actor Reginald Vel Johnson, uh, in the <laughs> in the prison scene. So uh, it, now after this, he went on to do Die Hard, correct? And I think, I think Die Hard Two, right? I think he was in that as well. I think he was.
1: Yeah, yeah. he does, he has a a real like shoehorned cameo in yeah. Die Hard Two, where he gets the call from McClane. Hey, I'm faxing you something. Tell me about it. It's just so shoehorned in. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and they make this whole reference about eating Twinkies or
1: something like that. Yeah. <laughs>
2: well, the, How many times was he, what, did he play a cop? Does any of y'all, did any a, of y'all know?
1: A lot of times. I, a lot of times. I, I couldn't get a gauge on it. Total, like I looked at his IMDb page and I couldn't get a gauge on it entirely because a lot of the movies I hadn't seen. But um, we, of course, this this is the launching of it. This is, begins the long career yeah. of being typecast as a cop and there was one uh something called plain clothes uh that he was his name was captain something so i assume he's the captain of the plain clothes yeah. policeman and then you know of course die hard sealed it and then i can't remember if he actually appeared in perfect strangers as his character because you know perfect strangers being the yeah the show that launched family matters but his wife was was a character on that show
0: Yeah she was the elevator operator yeah. in that show right yeah Helen, yeah, yeah. You we were
2: saying, uh, I don't, keep going, man! I keep cutting you off. I'm no, that's sorry. okay. Uh, it, I get so excited when I'm talking about Reginald vale
1: Johnson. <laughs> and I remember him too. Being a cop, he was a cop in Turner and Hooch, but he got to wear a suit. He was like, he was like a, a, a detective in that one. He got to get off the street. You know, he wasn't that, he, he wasn't on the cop beat cop anymore, <laughs> anymore yeah. at that point, but. Uh, as far as I could tell, once Carl, once the Carl Winslow character was retired, that he, he said, no more cops. And, and he's graduated to being doctors and, and preachers and every, you know, everything, everything yeah. I could find of him was basically doctor um, so-and-so or reverend so-and-so.
2: I heard Boris Korloff once say that to be typecast is the best thing that can happen to an actor because it gives you Consistent guaranteed work. work. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. But then, I don't know about all that. I mean, uh apparently this guy, you know, Reginald Bill Johnson was so sick of playing cops that he had to request, you know, no more cops in my career. Look, sometimes
0: you see somebody in a police outfit and you say, this man was born to wear this outfit. <laughs> and they just do it for their whole career. I continue to get cast as a bodybuilder in movies. I don't know why. People just see me and they look at me and yeah. they're like, bodybuilder, right? Yeah. No. So.
1: Well, I would say this for, for Reginald Reginaldville Johnson. You know, he would be perfectly happy with the typecasting if he was still just a character actor getting small roles. But he got a show that went way into syndication and made his money like oh, ten yeah. times over, yeah. and he gets to he gets to say now I can put away the badge. I don't have to do that anymore. But you know, he would, if that wouldn't have happened, he'd be perfectly happy happy playing cops right now. I'm sure
2: putting away the badge. He's saying that all the way to the bank. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you guys got anything else for minute number seventy three?
2: Yeah, real quick. Yeah. So we've addressed a couple times now that. Uh, The Ghostbusters really um, holds true to New uh, New York City geography, and when you see Lewis run out of the apartment earlier when he's being chased by the terror dog, he uh, runs right across the street into Central Park, which is where it would actually be, and whenever we go into Dana's apartment, um, through the blown out wall, you see the cityscape in the background, and in between that is Central Park. So I always thought that's real good consistency. That's cool that they kept that in mind. Yeah. And then, um, of course, I, again, as has been made mentioned so many times, uh, we've gotten to see Lewis constantly be locked out of his apartment, and now he's the key master, and he doesn't have to touch the door at all. The door flies <laughs> open for him. Mm-hmm. And
1: so... Well, I would argue that that maybe isn't the key that we're talking about here. I think uh, <laughs> it's not as literal like. it's Hang on. It, I have
0: to point at something. That's the key. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Come on, Brady. Come on, get with it. Yeah, I'll explain some things to you <laughs> later on. It, what are you guys talking about? When he walks into the apartment, I don't know if he knows too, but it's, it's <laughs> body language. The gate is fully open. Okay. When he walks you know in there what? As well, Two, you so. can
2: kiss my ass. i right, slowing the uptake.
0: Come on. All right. All right. <laughs>
2: uh, that's all that I've got for, uh, for this minute. Yeah.
0: Uh, John, you got anything else for minute number 73? Well, I, I got something, but I think I'll save it for tomorrow okay great well that it's set you'll be back on tomorrow for minute number 74 (laughs) awesome all right john well before we end this episode can you just tell everybody real quick where they could find you on the internet again
1: yeah you can find our show alien minute at alienminute.com. you can also follow us on twitter at alien minute pod or on instagram at alien minute podcast
0: awesome all right john well thank you so much for being here uh we will see you tomorrow for john for brady and myself we're here to remind you that death is but a door time a window we'll be back Ghostbusters
2: Minute is a fan-supported podcast. To become a patron of Ghostbusters Minute and gain access to exclusive weekly bonus content, visit us at patreon.com slash gbminutes. If you like the podcast, then leave us a review on iTunes. You can contact us at ghostbustersminute at gmail.com and visit us online at ghostbustersminute.com, facebook.com slash ghostbustersminute, twitter.com slash and look us up on Instagram at ghostbustersminute. Our theme song is Ectoplasm by Audionautix, which is licensed under the Creative Commons Attributions License.